Who was here two and a half years ago, actually, as we ended this study before COVID hit? Just, just Phoebe. Wow, okay. Okay. So what we're doing in this is Christian ethics, and we're, we've been working, this is kind of part two, I suppose, but we're working our way through Wayne Grudem's book on ethics, and there's stuff in there, like, it's 98% great, and there's things that I tweak with Wayne Grudem, it's my own stuff, and uh, so you've probably heard some of that, but it's all on the website, so you go back and listen to it, but we're in now the part where it says, you shall not commit adultery, and the way that he sets this up is every one of the Ten Commandments kind of becomes a jumping off point for a whole lot of stuff, so this basically encompasses Marriage, polygamy, homosexuality, transgender, like anything you can think of, IVF, every, everything's going to be in this one dealing with sex. So that's what's coming up. Just a quick recap from before, though. Um, what is marriage? This is, where, this is why we're in this section right now. I've had a definition of marriage. Marriage has been understood as the legal union of a man and woman as husband and wife in all cultures and societies throughout all human history. And then there was a fuller definition from the scripture. In scripture, marriage is seen as a lifelong relationship between a man and a woman that is established by a solemn covenant before God. And then we looked at uh, the fact that marriage changes a person's status before God and society. Uh, Also, some kind of public awareness is necessary for a marriage. Sexual intercourse alone does not constitute marriage. Uh, Sexual union is an essential component of marriage with rare exceptions. Marriage pitches a relationship between Christ and the church. Christians should only marry other Christians. So that was the first part. Then part B, which we also covered, was the goodness of sexual intimacy within marriage, looking at things like 1 Corinthians 7 and other things as well. So that was all two and a half years ago. COVID hit. We haven't done a thing since. So today we're picking up where we left off. You can see this in your, your PDF, which is actually sent out in the announcements. So every week there's a PDF for this class in the announcements. Um, Part C now, God's definition of marriage is morally binding on all people in all societies for all human history. Then we're going to be looking at adultery, physical intimacy prior to marriage, masturbation. Now this is going to be, we're not going to cover all that in one shot. We're going to kind of take the link sausage approach. We'll just cut things off as it comes along. I've been told that uh, 10 after 10 might be our hard cutoff, so that's where we're going. Uh, Any questions though before we get started? All good? All right. C. God's definition of marriage is morally binding on all people in all societies for all human history, not just Israel in the Old Testament. And that's important that I point that out because um, we've already seen in this series that there are a number of laws in the Old Testament that were intended only for Israel, for the Jewish people, for a particular time in their history. So let me just, I'll throw this out to you. Where in the Bible? does the foundational teaching occur about marriage? What's the foundational text? None of these questions are rhetorical. You gotta actually... Genesis? Genesis what? Two? Two. Eight, 18 to 25. Hey, well, here, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis 2 is the answer. Um, from the beginning of the human race at the time when Adam and Eve were created... That's the foundation of marriage. And it comes before, obviously, there was any evil in the world, any sin. This is before the fall. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why Jesus says that these truths about marriage 
are, come from the beginning. Matthew 19, 4. From the beginning, it was not such. That's why you're giving your wives up for divorce and stuff. He says, no, from the beginning, it wasn't that way. In Genesis, that was not the case. Or before the fall, I should say. Uh, they belong to the essence of God's creation for us as male and females. Therefore, God intends the understanding of marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman to be the correct definition of marriage for all the people on earth for all cultures and all societies on earth, and for all periods of history until the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. Why that last qualification? Until the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. This is what it is. Why, why that? Why would I say it like that? Since there's no marriage in the Yep, you can see that confidence loudly. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> there is no marriage. You know, so... Uh, Johnny and Gloria, you won't, you won't be married for eternity. And I won't be married, you won't be married, you won't be married. So This is why it is just for God to bring judgment on the non-Jewish cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their widespread practice of homosexual conduct in Genesis 19. It's because it's a violation of this. Uh, he also brought judgment upon Pharaoh, king of Egypt, for taking Sarah, Abraham's wife, in Genesis 12. Uh, the book of Proverbs contains wisdom, not just for the people of Israel in the Old Covenant era, but for the conduct of life generally. And the book of Proverbs frequently gives warnings against adultery. I'll just list them here for, the, for posterity. Uh, 2, 16 to 19, 5, 1 to 23, 6, 20 to 35, 7, 4 to 27, 23, 27 to 28. In the New Testament era, John the Baptist rebuked Herod Antipas for committing incest by taking his brother's wife in Mark 6. And Paul says that Gentiles who do not have the Jewish laws uh, were still guilty of violating God's moral standards regarding sexual conduct. Uh, Romans 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, which is that too, I think. In the book of Revelation, the great city called Babylon, the, the center of earthly rebellion against God, is judged for its many sins, and among them is sexual immorality. Revelation 18, 3 and 9. In addition, those left outside the heavenly city in Revelation 21.8 include the sexually immoral. So, that means from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the Bible to the very end, God has established moral standards about the nature and conduct of marriage. Moreover, he indicates repeatedly that he will hold all people on earth accountable if they choose to disobey those standards. A very clear example of this, I want you to turn here, uh, is Leviticus 18, which states that the Canaanites were morally responsible before God for many kinds of sexual sin. That's important. The Canaanites, who didn't have the word of God, they didn't have you know, the prophets, says, no, it's because they're acting this way, judgment is coming. And this is also going to get into our incest text later on, so we're going to read through the whole thing. Leviticus 18, 6 to 28. This is the the law of God, the law of Moses. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, uh, whether she was born in the same house, house or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife. Born to your father. She is your sister. 
Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because that is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you. And the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Obviously, this is before they go into the promised land. He's saying their sin has now raised up to a... An, a height that I cannot abide, therefore you're coming in in judgment. This is part of the reason why, because of their sexual morality. So God, though, he held the nations in Canaan accountable for violating his standards regarding marriage, despite the fact that they did not have the written laws of Israel and were not part of the Jewish people. However, God's moral standards were written on their hearts, and their conscience bore witness to those standards. Therefore, God rightly held them accountable, Romans Two, all these passages indicate that the definition of marriage as established by God in the Bible, so a lifelong union between one man and one woman, should be the standard adopted by all governments. And the standard for marriage should apply to all people, not merely to Christians or to those who maybe are culturally conservative and they they just happen to agree with the Bible's standards. Any questions on that? Any comments? Nothing about incest? Okay. (laughs) Two, marriage between a man and woman is the most fundamental institution in any society. Following immediately after his creation of man and woman, God established marriage, Genesis 1 and 2, before any other institution of human society. It is the first institution. It came before any establishment of cities, nations, courts of law, or any human laws. It certainly preceded any national, state, or city government. It came before the establishment of any schools, businesses, churches, or any, uh, or any uh, non-profit organizations. It came before the establishment of any other institution in human society, and it's foundational to the establishment of any society. This is, this is a, a word in season, I hope. Societies have long recognized the crucial, crucial importance of some kind of normalization of a dependable, ongoing, faithful marriage relationship between men and women. Maybe you know of something. I'm not aware of any exceptions to the generalization 
that every human nation on earth, up to the last 20 years, <laughs> in every society of any size or permanence at all, has recognized and protected the institution of heterosexual marriage. I don't know of any exceptions to that. It's just, this is novel, what's happening in our society now. Now, now there, there have been some societies that have recognized uh, polygamy as a form of marriage, uh, but it was still heterosexual marriage, heterosexual polygamy. Now, speaking of polygamy, we'll just get all the distasteful stuff out of the way first here. Why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? I mean, look at the patriarchs. They have multiple wives and concubines, and you know, these guys are supposed to be like the standards of morality. Or why, did, why did that happen? <clears throat> any, any thoughts on this? this? This is what makes this sort of these classes so great. It's like, yeah, I've always kind of wanted to know about that, and you kind of get the answer. So, any thoughts, Phil? Is it the hardness of human hearts? That's very good, yes. Yeah, so fundamentally, that would be it. Yeah. I'm going I'm to go through six reasons why, but uh, that's, that's, the, that's the most important one. Here's, here's, let me just let's talk about polygamy. Six points here. Um, in the beginning, God created man, male, and he created male and female uh, with the purpose that they would marry and the two would become one flesh. That one flesh reality is obviously profoundly compromised by polygamy. When Jesus dealt with divorce and showed how the Pharisees were getting divorces when they shouldn't, even though it was permitted in the Old Testament, divorce was, he showed us in his response, our Lord, a way to understand why polygamy was also permitted and yet is now forbidden. Here's what he said. This is Matthew 19. You can turn there if you would like. <clears throat> By the way, all my textual references are from the ESV. Um, have you not read, this is Matthew 19, 4 to 8, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And I think at that point you could actually imagine them also saying, why then did he permit polygamy? If, if, that were, if that were the issue of the day, it wasn't, but uh, Jesus said to them, because of the hardness, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's the beginning? Exactly. So the reason Jesus did not any longer permit what had been permitted is because he chopped it up in the Old Testament to tolerance of the expressions of the hardness of the heart. And he is raising the standard. The reason why Jesus didn't address polygamy at the same time he was addressing divorce uh, was that in his day, the Jewish culture had basically given it up. Uh, it just wasn't an issue. Uh, people weren't coming to him with multiple wives and saying, what should we do about this? Uh, that would have been nice for us from a certain perspective. Um, certain cultures obviously practice polygamy. Uh, but Jesus never addressed polygamy directly in that sense. So the point, so the point uh, there was that, is that there is a way to understand the tolerance of an act in the Old Testament, which is now forbidden. Third, we see in Genesis 4 that polygamy was owing to the growing of the hardness of the heart after the fall of Adam and Eve. After Genesis 3, you just see this downward spiral of sin. Things get worse and worse and worse. 
And I think that that is exactly what Moses wants us to see when he describes uh, Lamech, the seventh generation from Adam. Here's what he says. This is Genesis 4.19. Lamech took two wives. And this is the first time this had ever happened. He took two wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is is seventy-sevenfold. So you you couldn't imagine a more high-handed, kind of ugly, mean-spirited, in-your-face-against-God statement than that. And it comes right after saying he took two wives, unlike all the others before him. So things are getting pretty bad in Genesis chapter 4, in this downward spiral of sin. They're getting so bad that now people are taking on multiple wives. Four, Paul's description of marriage as a picture of Christ and the church is seriously compromised by polygamy. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. The most basic and significant meaning of marriage in the New Testament is that a husband and wife represent one Lord and one church. Since this is now more clearly revealed than ever, it is more important than ever to renounce polygamy and hold fast to the original intention of marriage as one man, one woman, one Lord, one church, as long as they both shall live. Five, it it is required of elders that they be the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3.2. That could be translated as you know, a one-woman a one kind of man. Um, that's an excellent translation. He needs to be faithful. Uh, Carson would say that actually that actually is probably the most explicit reference you're going to get to polygamy in the New Testament about that. Uh, it's very interesting. Like, we look at this as Canadians. This is all very abstract. You know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, polygamy back in the old days or something. That's not the case for many cultures around the world. Polygamy is the thing. Uh, The ESV study note has this. I think this is wise. This has practical application today in missionary contexts, in cultures where polygamy is still practiced. The Bible would not encourage a husband to divorce any of his multiple wives. See, there's another ethical quandary. You have five wives. Do I divorce nine of them? Like, no, I would argue. Don't don't do that. But... um, that would leave them without support, protection, uh, but it would not allow a man with multiple wives to become an elder. Uh, this restriction would provide a pattern that would generally lead to the abolition of polygamy in a church in a generation or two. The culture may be, but the church wouldn't have it. The culture would. So uh, I think Carson made a good note. I just heard him doing a lecture once, but he said, you know, as you go into a, into a new culture and there's polygamy happening and, and who has the most wives? Well, it's probably the chief of that tribe, perhaps, or the king, or whatever it might be. He has multiple wives. He's like, well, this guy should just, he's the king, right? He should just naturally be uh, the pastor of the church. He's wise, he's whatever, he's got the money. He's like, no, you can't. You, could, you actually have multiple wives. You're not allowed to be uh, a pastor of a local church. Uh, so it's a, a protective thing as well. So, uh, Any questions on that? There's still got a couple more here, but yeah. This would also include polyamory, too, right? Sure, yep, yeah. By the way, just, just to get the, the format down here, you guys can raise your hands and ask questions anytime you want. So don't just wait for me you, if you have a question. Sometimes I'll just push on through, but feel free, raise your hand. Six, the Bible does not seem to show, the Bible does seem to show the likelihood that with more than one wife, there is almost inevitable favoritism. 
of the one over the other, as in the case of Jacob's preference for Rachel over Leah. In a sense, this is the flip side warning of saying that the husband and his wife are one flesh. A husband cannot be all that he should be in one flesh union with his wife if he must divide his affections among several women. That is certainly not the way Christ treats the church. He does not divide his affections among several different wives. So, for these six reasons, I would say polygamy was permitted because of the hardness of, your, of the hearts until the coming of Jesus. And that with Jesus, the standards are raised and the mystery of the meaning of marriage is clarified now with his coming. And we should be committed to making plain the beauties of Christ and his church through our covenant faithfulness between one husband and one wife. Before we move on to adultery, any questions about that? Phil. Um, these parts of part things, they're, they're sin, right? I'm not, I'm not sure if he's saying the hardness of heart itself is the polygamy or it is the... I think, I think what he's saying in that text, and I, I preached this, so I hope it's right, but actually he's saying that, that sometimes sin in a marriage can be so disgusting that actually, the, not the perfect alternative, but actually that, that merciful alternative actually is divorce. And he's saying because of your hardness of heart, because of your sin, there can be... Uh, there can be this exception. It wasn't this way from the beginning because there wasn't any sin. But actually, in, in that Old Testament text from Deuteronomy, it's actually, if she, the, the language is vague, but if your wife does something that's like defiling in that kind of way, but if we know it's not adultery because there's actually, there's actually something for adultery. There's, there's a consequence for that. There's, there's a way to deal with adultery. So it's not that. It's something else uh, where she, she doesn't find favor in her husband's eyes, although the religious leaders of the day would actually say, oh, you burned, you literally burned supper. I can divorce you. Here's, here's a bill of divorce. Moses says, this is okay. Here's this bill of divorce. I've written it on paper. Now you're divorced. I think it's just that there's, there can be such sin, disgusting sin in marriage that kind of the, the next less worse alternative is actually is divorce itself. Yeah. And that, that would still apply today as well. Divorce is never just a neutral kind of option. There needs to be grave sin there happening first. Uh, do we know why polygamy kind of, I guess, was diminishing by this time? I don't know. I'm not sure. A lot of stuff got beaten out of Israel by the exile, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Idolatry and things like this, but I'm not, I'm not really sure why, Glenn. It's a good historical question. Okay. Adultery. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20:14. This is the, the jumping off point. It's not that we don't commit adultery because Exodus tells us that, I would be arguing. It's like the Lord Jesus himself, the apostles, make that very clear. But in this next section, I want to explain more specifically why God so strictly prohibits adultery and then discuss other kinds of sexual relationships that are contrary to God's moral standards. So, number one, you can see this in your PDF. Adultery is prohibited in Scripture. A, Scripture repeatedly affirms that adultery is wrong. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery is affirmed several times in the New Testament. Matthew 15, 19, 19, 18, Luke 18, 20, Romans 2, 22, 13, 9, James 2, 11, 2 Peter 2, 14, showing that it, is still, it still applies in the New Covenant age. Adultery is wrong. B, adultery wrongly intrudes another person into the one flesh relationship of marriage, obviously. 
Uh, scripture emphasizes that within marriage, a man shall be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But adultery means that three people now are involved in the one flesh relationship, contrary to God's intention for unity and exclusiveness within marriage. C. Adultery wrongly pictures unfaithfulness in the relationship between Christ and the church. Paul teaches that the relationship between a husband and wife is a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.32. Therefore, if a husband commits adultery, he is portraying Christ as being unfaithful to his people and abandoning them and not keeping his covenant with them. If a wife commits adultery, it's a picture of the church worshiping another god and being unfaithful to Christ. Both portrayals are deeply dishonoring to Jesus. D. Adultery destroys trust within a marriage. Adultery is the most serious violation of a person's marriage promise to be faithful for his or her whole life. If one spouse violates that promise, the other spouse will rightly wonder whether the adulterous spouse can ever be trusted again. And if trust is destroyed within a marriage, all other aspects of the relationship become much more difficult. E. Adultery frequently destroys a person's entire life. The warnings against adultery in Proverbs are harsh, blunt, they're vivid in their portrayal of terrible destruction. One warning against adultery portrays a man grasping hot coals, burning coals and clutching them to his chest. Um, I preached on this just a little while ago, but Proverbs 6, 27 to 33. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He, he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Another vivid image uh, compares a man who commits adultery to an animal that ignorantly walks into its violent and sudden death. Uh, this is uh, from Proverbs seven twenty one. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And then just prior to these two warnings, there's a longer one that portrays the allurement of a woman who tempts a man to commit adultery. This is Proverbs 5, 3 to 11. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed." I'd also say that these challenges, they're a real, they're a real challenge to parents. Um, I mean, if you have a, a two-year-old, I wouldn't advise it, but at some point along the way, you need to ask yourself as a parent, are you willing to give such vivid warnings as these verses to your children? You, know, you see this as the teacher in Proverbs is pointing out to his son, hey, look at the drunkard over there. 
Look at the sloth. You know, look at the look at the loose woman. You know, there, there's there's an age appropriate time to be doing this kind of stuff. Questions on that before we get to safeguards against adultery. Yeah. How does pornography fit into this discussion? We're gonna get to that big time. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's an issue unto itself, but it definitely applies to you. Is sure. it because I think my experience is that amongst Christians, porn is sort of um, some Christians believe that it is adultery, but others say that it's more of a degree of adultery. We're we're gonna get into that. It's just that's opening up a another can of worms right now. <laughs> yep. Let's just stick to physical adultery right now, okay? <laughs> Any other questions? Safeguards against adultery. And again, I would, I would encourage you, if this is something that you're thinking through, I have a sermon from Proverbs 6 or 5 just from a few months ago that I did on this, and uh, I just I poured my heart and soul into it, and I, I really, I'm, uh, it was looking at Proverbs, and uh, I thought it was, I hope it could be helpful. But safeguards against adultery. People who have committed adultery often tell similar stories of how it began with a seemingly innocent friendship and then progress into more frequent times together until eventually more and more boundaries were crossed and then adultery actually physically occurred. So some passages of scripture warn people to avoid situations that might lead to adultery or that would even give the appearance of inappropriate behavior. For example, when speaking about a forbidden woman, Proverbs 5.3, the counsel of the father to his son in Proverbs uh, 5.8 is keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. In other words, don't spend time in the company of someone for whom you begin to feel a sexual attraction toward an immoral relationship. Don't even decide to go near where they are. And so give more opportunity for temptation. Don't eat your lunch with them. Don't sit on the TTC together. Don't, you know, whatever. You know, going by his desk, her desk, on your way to the coffee maker at the office every single time. Don't do it. Steer, steer clear. Joseph, when he was pursued by Potiphar's wife, left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He actually physically ran from her. Not looking too cool, but, you know, he was... He was chased. He was pure. In the New Testament, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans 13, 14. And give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4, 27. This again implies that people should avoid situations in which they would likely be tempted to inappropriate behavior. But the same thing is, if you're an alcoholic, don't tempt yourself by going into a bar, sitting down, and then ordering a Coke. That would be insane. It's the same thing here. Some common sense safeguards that some people have followed, pastors particularly, include uh, taking care not to be alone with a person of the opposite sex, as they call the Billy Graham rule, you've heard of that. Uh, keeping one's office door open, if you have a church office and the secretary's out there, but you just keep the door open as people come in, as a woman comes in. Or having a window in the door. I know a pastor who has uh, an office in his house, and he actually has a window in his office door, and his wife can walk by anytime she wants and, and look into it. So, uh, At New City... One-on-one pastoral meetings between myself and a woman are always, always, always held in a visible area. At a coffee shop, or if the weather's nice, on my front porch, that's fine, or in a public park. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, again, that sermon is called The Folly of Adultery, The Wisdom of Marriage. I'd, I'd recommend it to you. Um, yeah. Any, any questions about that or any just clarifications? 
In the world of digital communications, how is that whole thing that not being alone with someone else's text? No, that's a very good question. Yes. Yeah. Wisdom is needed for that as well. Where it's like, I, I think, I mean, in every, basically every woman here will be able to testify to this and say, but I think a pastor should be able to, if there's like, if there's things on, on like we're meeting up for church stuff, like I, I, would, show, I would show my text history of any uh, member of this church who's female to the whole church. It, it came down to it. You'll see it's, it's polite, it's nice, it's, it's loving, but it's actually, it's not like, it's not beyond that. There's a, there's a degree of professionalism, you want to call it there. And you can't be getting into like nitty gritty personal details. It's not, it's not appropriate. And there's, there's a balance there though too. And I, I was kind of debating getting into it or not. But there's, there, is, there is something too where the Billy Graham rule I think would be taken too far. Where it's like you need to be able also just using common sense. And the pastor needs to use common sense. Where if I go over to Alex and Jesse who live next door. And Alex is in there and I'm wearing a cup of sugar. It's okay to be alone with Jesse for, you know, I know Jesse very well for the, the two minutes it takes me to get that. But I'm not hanging out there sitting down and like you know, having a coffee. You know, I, I, I don't do that. Um, I, there's a part of the Billy Graham rule that I, just, I wouldn't want women to feel like somehow their pastor is just some like ravenous sexual animal who's just like waiting for the opportunity to get a woman alone. Or like you're just, you're just exuding sexual power in a way that like no man is, can resist you. You know, or I have to like go way out of my way to drop you off first, you know, in the car, you know, and, and I sometimes I have done that. And there's, there's been times in my pastoral ministry where I've told Jill, I'm meeting with so-and-so. Um, I'm going to I'm actually going to record the conversation, put my tracker on just to be safe. I don't really know her that well. And she's maybe a little bit uh, something I'm getting a bad vibe here. So I tell my wife that. But if it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, this woman I've known for 10 years, I know she's not bad in any kind of way. I'm not going to go out of my way to make sure that I drop her off first so that we're not alone in the car for five minutes. Some people would disagree with that. And maybe that will come back to, in a me too kind of way, kind of come back to haunt me. I, I don't think so, but I want to be wise with that. But anyway, you know, you give him, maybe I've let the cat out of the bag. So if I do drop you off, first, like, don't think I'm crazy. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Like, that's that balance where it's like we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, I want to be wise, and there needs to be a professionalism without also, I want you to think that I am your friend, I love you, but it's, you know, there's a, I need to be careful. And Alex is the same way. What do you guys think? Anything you want to comment on that? Or? Yeah? I don't know, maybe I took it too far. It's like I grew up understanding that. Another, another what? Sorry. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's it. That sounds wise, though. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's. I would do the same thing.
even did this with friends. Like when I was single, like I had single guy friends, a couple of them, but like once I got married, it was like no more private conversations. I was like, like I had a friend who got married and he wanted to have like a, a video chat. And I was like, that's fine, but it's only as long as your wife's there. And, and then they had a chat and I'm like, yeah, sure, that's, that makes sense. So like I would chat with them despite being also in the chat. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's, it, it's worked in some cases. In one case, I think I actually lost a friend because he didn't like the whole idea of copying my husband and mm -hmm. conversations. And he just, I don't talk, we don't talk anymore, but um, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe I took things too far. That's kind of where I, I, I think there's a wisdom to that. I do. No, but well, I'll begin to finish here in two seconds. Another safeguard is to be aware of the danger signs in one's own heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can recognize when we feel an unusual attraction to a person of the opposite sex to whom we are not married. Or when we desire to find excuses to meet that person or be with that person in various situations, or when we desire to prolong conversations beyond what is necessary, and so forth. You can, just, you can just tell in your own heart, I'm basically flirting with this person, in a very maybe subtle, passive-aggressive kind of, I don't know whatever, so you can just tell. When such feelings arise in one's heart, it's probably wise to intentionally distance oneself from the relationship. Questions about that? Okay, we're going to stop it there, and uh, we're setting a new precedent here. So 10-10 is going to be our hard cutoff. This gives us 20 minutes before the start of the service. So thanks, guys. We'll pick this up again next week.